Hello and welcome to uh, 60 Hertz, the democracy podcast for the next few months. Uh, I'm here with Karen Patterson. That's me. Um, and we will talk about uh, democracy for the next uh, weeks to come with uh, preeminent thinkers from Harvard and MIT. Yes, and ourselves. And ourselves. <laughs> so we have questions and we sort of might have some in input, weigh, weigh in into the discussion. Uh, we'll have breakfast most of the time uh, in this uh, very beautiful bunker-like room of the <laughs> Lippmann House off Kirkland Avenue. And uh, we had the pleasure just to talk with uh, Taylor Scotchpole mm -hmm. this morning. What, yes. do you, what do you think? Well, just to tell our um, listeners who she is, she's a professor in sociology, I think, and political science at Harvard. She's this grand old lady of... Uh, political science, one of them, in the U.S., and she has done a lot of research on money in politics, on institutions, the role of the state, and she, uh, no, she, I, I, I kind of loved her, I loved talking to her. <laughs> I knew that, I knew uh, that yeah. before. Yeah, so she's, uh, she's not the visionary type, perhaps. We'll she's, have that next week, I Yeah, think. so uh, she's very much here now, I think she's interesting because she thinks a lot about how to, how to, how to use existing organizations, existing structures for change. She's not, um, you know, she says you have to win elections to... Uh, Still, she seemed torn. Yeah, way. she seemed very torn. <laughs> yeah, it was an interest. She was going back and forth. Yeah, so she said that it's not uh, economy, but immigration. And that's the key yeah. question that you sort of I struggle with. Yeah, Is I don't agree. Country? I don't really agree with that, but I agree with a lot of the other things she said. But it was nice, sort of, that she, as she said, that she's an American patriot. Yeah. Which I can relate to because she so belie believes so much in the, not only the sort of the, the, the meaning and the message of this country, but the, the very sort of the yeah, work of I this. Think, how, no, how, how, how yeah, exactly. And it's interesting to hear someone who is so pessimistic about Donald Trump and who is so like fearful of him, but still be trying to believe in the American people or, you know, the counter forces uh, to this in this political moment. And she was kind of struggling with that, I think. So, but you will have to listen. Yeah, let's and uh, make your own judgment. Let's let's listen into that. Welcome, Tia Scotchpole, to the podcast. Um, Thank you. Nice to be here. Should we start right at the beginning, uh, right where we are? Okay. Um, <laughs> how did we get here? And um, I think the most pressing questions for I don't know, any, I think, concerned observer: Will the institutions hold in this country? In the United States. Yeah. I, you know, I do think uh, American institutions, if we mean by that, not just governing institutions, political parties, but civil society, the media, will hold during this period. Um, how we got here? Well, um, I've been studying the U.S. right for some time, and um, some years ago wrote a book with Vanessa Williamson, who's now at the Brookings Institution on the Tea Party. Uh, which erupted, as everybody will recall, uh, right at the beginning of Barack Obama's presidency in 2008, when many commentators thought the Democrats were riding a wave of the future with young voters, minority voters, who were a rising proportion of the U.S. population, a lot of educated um, uh, whites, particularly women. And uh, that Tea Party was two prongs that were kind of uh, going at the Republican Party at the time, which had just lost under John McCain, as well as uh, opposing um, Democrats and Barack Obama. Um, the top-down components were ultra-free market uh, elites. Uh, above all, as time passed, the growing Koch network around Charles and David Koch, which has created virtually a third political party to the far right, um, designed to pull the Republican Party in the United States toward anti-government, ultra-free market, anti-environmental and global warming regulations, dismantling social spending of the kind we have in this country, which is mainly focused on the elderly, um, and is certainly opposing Obama's new initiatives to tax the rich slightly more and pay for health care uh, for lower-income people, um, also to reform the immigration system in a way that would create a path to citizenship for some 11 million. They were opposed to all of that. Um, maybe the elite's not so opposed to the path for citizenship, but the bottom-up part of the Tea Party, which was really 
conservative act, activists who are angry at their own party as well as for the Democrats. Um, for them, we learned in our interviews and observations the number one issue was fear of immigration, mm -hmm. anger about immigration, and about the changing cultural and racial composition of the United States, and Obama <clears throat> symbolized that. Now, you know, all of that played into the Republicans gaining ground during the aftermath of the Great Recession in um, the 2010 elections, coming closer in 2012, although they didn't win, making ground in the Congress, state legislatures. So they've really made a lot of gains as the party has moved to the far right. But by the time you go into the 2016 cycle, I mean, the, the Republican Party was in many ways kind of buffeted and hollowed out, and Donald Trump walked right into that gap. Um, he defeated, as we know, 16 much more normal, I mean, in the sense of their careers, normal Republican candidates, most of them more normal, governors, senators. Um, and he uh, tapped into that populist anger um, at the base of the Republican Party, which I think is much more focused on immigration than it is on economic issues. This is a disagreement hmm. among analysts, but I think the anger about immigration is the wellspring here. Um, and he, he captured the Republican nomination, and once he had that, you know, it's different than in Europe. In Europe, these populist nativist tendencies often go into third, fourth, fifth parties. And they may change the nature of coalitions. They may change, uh, they may move major parties in the parliamentary systems, but they often don't take over outright. Uh, once you have this kind of thrust taking over uh, in the form of a, a media manipulating, um, you know, um, He's a narcissist. He's uh, he expresses resentment. He uh, he's he he he's going to uh, govern at home and abroad in an angry style that reflects really a minority of Americans who are the popular base of the Republican Party. But once they take over a major political party, then they have a chance to win, and that's what happened. Squeaked in. Uh, and uh, now he's in charge of a unified party government, which is frightening because the United States has very few checks and balances inside government for leaders who violate basic norms. Still, you say that you think that institutions will hold. I do, but I think the institutions that are going to hold are going to be the ones outside mm -hmm. government. Mm -hmm. We're already seeing a change in behavior of major media outlets who recognize that they were played for um, fools in, in, the, in the primaries and general election. And even though the, the Trump regime is going to try to bypass them and, and does bypass them in terms of communicating with their core yeah. supporters, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't expect to see the Washington Post, CNN, um, the New York Times, and, and there are a variety of now independent news outlets on the Internet. Mm -hmm. None of them are going to cave uh, in the face of even a lot of harassment. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that you're going to see organized opposition in civil society uh, in and around the Democratic Party. Now, I have a big question how much the Democratic Party is going to get its act together. I don't think that we know yet. Mm -hmm. But I don't really think you're going to see mo many Americans, particularly in the sort of more urban areas and the coastal states, um, sitting back um, while extreme actions are taken from Washington. Now, a lot of those are going to happen anyway, and uh, it is an open question whether this is going to be a four- or eight-year interval and whether there will be losses for the Republicans in Congress, and I don't know the answer to that yet. I don't think anybody does. I'm interested in what you said about um, what happened with the Republican Party and sort of the hijacking of the party by these uh, billionaires or by uh, corporate interests. And you've been writing about this and doing a lot of research on the Koch brother uh, network and, and so on. Would you say that the Trump, the success of Trump is kind of a because they have been driving, as you say, the Republican Party to the to the right in. In, on economic on, on, on issues, economic issues. Yeah, yeah. and they haven't really had the voters with them no, on that. They don't have the voters with them on dismantling health <laughs> insurance in this country, or so is it, is cutting it, back social security, or breaking unions, or any of those. So things. is Trump's reaction to that kind of 
to an overreach, would you say? No, I think he's more taking advantage of a vacuum. Uh, You know, Trump ran for office by giving hints that he would combine, this is a combination I think we see more in European politics than we've seen in the United States, that he would combine nativist opposition to immigration with defense of social spending for Native Americans. Now that he's in office, though, I mean, and this was evident like the day after the election, that a lot of that uh, defense of the uh, welfare state here, for even for native-born people, might very well not be the case because he's appointed very extreme. The irony of the Coke Network is that they don't support Trump. They didn't. Yeah. And by they, I mean the brothers themselves and many of their four to 500 donors that mm-hmm. meet twice a year. Some of them did. You know, rich people in the United States go all over the place when it comes to supporting particular candidates, and there are some uh, Coke attendees who have defected, defected even in the primaries, but they didn't, they made a big fuss of not supporting him and claiming that they weren't campaigning for him and not, and rich Americans often didn't donate directly to Donald Trump. First of all, he had a lot of free media, didn't Hmm. need the money. And secondly, they didn't trust him. You know, nobody trusts the Trump to not just spend it on his own family businesses. So even those who supported him on the right did so through independent vehicles. But that's the thing about the Koch Network. I mean, their major political organization, the Americans for Prosperity, campaigned for Republican senators. They were thinking Trump might lose, so they... They had Plan B, which is to control everything around Hillary Clinton if she was elected. But they also turned out voters that voted for Trump. And then immediately once he was elected, he turned to politicians that have been very central to the Koch network. Uh, Paul Ryan in in the House of Representatives, uh, Mike Pence, the vice president, who he was talked into putting on the ticket. He's very closely connected to the Koch network, and they've proceeded to put a lot of their people in charge of domestic policy. Foreign policy is a different manner. Immigration is a different manner. But at home, it, there are a lot of signs that Trump will sign uh, sweeping cutbacks in American um, social provision, regulation of business, so they're happy. Measures. Yeah, they're quite happy. And in fact, recently, um, uh, Tim Phillips, who's the head of Americans for Prosperity, the quasi-political party that the Cokes have created, said, we're happy hmm. with most of what he said, that in public. So why wouldn't they be? And they're certainly thrilled with this Supreme Court appointment and hoping for more. Why is it so difficult to, to change the obvious deficit of this democratic process that that Money is is the essential role. I mean, you, you said the the um, nominee for for the Supreme Court um, when yesterday was announced that there is already ten million dollars directed towards influencing the, the Democratic senators uh, um, who might oppose this this nomination. Um, so it's, it it feels like it doesn't feel like a democratic process. It feels like short term warfare with with money as the weapon. And and this should be so open for everybody to see that this is. Distorting. Well, the, welcome the to American politics. I mean, I, <laughs> yeah, I actually don't. I'm not of the school of thought that it's sheer amounts of money that are decisive here. Okay. I mean, let let's look at the situation. Hillary Clinton had plenty of money, and there is going to be a great deal of money deployed through organizations opposing the new Supreme Court appointment. It's not the amount of money; it's how it's spent. <laughs> And, uh, you know, all I can say is that on the right, the Koch Network and others have invested in the right kinds of things. Now, what are those in American politics? Well, I'll tell you what they are. They are federated organizations that can reach into the states. Remember, Hillary Clinton won this election if it were a national election. It wasn't. (laughs) This is a federated polity in which you have to put together uh, majorities in uh, particular congressional districts and states, and uh, you can eke out a win even without an overall majority if you get um, if you get organized and contact voters in the right places. That's what the right has been doing, and they've been doing it for a long time. They have pre-existing federated organizations like the National Rifle Association. They have the Christian right, which really is where a lot of public life occurs in many parts of the United States. Just go visit. You'll see churches are the place where people assemble. And those churches have been cultivated and drawn into political networks over a very long period of time. Uh, For them, 
Christian right people um, understand that Donald Trump is personally uh, no Christian, but they wanted that Supreme Court appointment. And then you've got the investments of the Koch Network, which really our research shows started in 2004, so that's well before Citizens United. It's not about Citizens United. And, and they built up this federated organization, which is really kind of right alongside the Republican Party and able to pull it. Americans and, for Prosperity. And Citizens name. United, we should say, is the uh, Supreme, Supreme Court, Court decision. A lot of, people, a lot of people on donations. the left think that that... Um, <clears throat> That decision opened the door to a change in American politics. I disagree with that. I think the big money in politics is not new in the United States. It always finds channels, and there's a lot of money on both sides. The question is how that money is deployed, but and uh, it has been deployed in very effective ways on the far right. So I'm interested in what you're saying because um, if you look at the struggle in politics as something between different interests uh, clashing with each other uh, there used to be in this country as well as in Europe um, more power uh, on the side of labor than oh, there is yeah, now well. there you, so we have a situation where trade unions have been weakened uh, both because of you know, um, change in economic structures and as an effect of political decisions. Yeah. And you have this um, exploding inequality, which gives more money and more capital even to, um, you know, the corporate interests who are now... And very building wealthy these, families. And w- really. Who are now building Ooh. these political organizations yeah, successfully. Yeah. What's the way out of this? Well, that's a good question. And, um, um, you know... I, because my analysis, and this is based on research, that I have a research, I have research groups that do these things, is not simply pointing to the amounts of money given. Yeah. I do think that part of the answer has to be organization on the center left and maybe raising a lot of money from modest donors. There are no small donors in American politics. Uh, small donors are people like me. They're you know, professionals who give $100 or even $50 at a time, but do it repeatedly. But, you know, there there is an organizational deficit now on the center left, and you pointed to one of the reasons, unions. Now, Europeans need to be aware that American unions have been weaker than European unions for a very sure. long time. That's not new. Yeah. They peaked at a third of the labor force in 1955, mm. so it's... That, that's not much of a peak, and that's yeah. a long time ago. And even ca- compared to Canada, it's much less unionized country. On the other hand, uh, public sector unions in particular were pretty strong in the 1970s, 80s, into the 90s. Um, and they had a real presence in states like Wisconsin and the Midwest. So that you didn't have just California and New York as bastions of liberalism. You could also count on organizations to get out messages, turn out voters, set agendas, influence legislators in both parties. And really. perhaps form opinion, I guess. Sure. Yeah. That's in many ways more important than simply what happens at the last minute in an election. And it's not coincidental that these organized right-wing networks, particularly the Koch Network, went after the public sector unions. That was their number one priority. Our research shows that they organized in this American Prosperity Federation They were in the upper Midwest in Michigan and Wisconsin very early, certainly in states like North Carolina as well, and they made it a priority to go after uh, the unions in the sense of passing laws, getting when Republicans got in, 2010, 11, they passed laws that made it impossible for public sector unions to collect dues and to bargain. Mm. And the effect of that has been to to cause their membership to plummet and their political activism to go down. And we have real statistical models that show that um, even in taking into account partisanship and public opinion, the, these union things have been furthered by the activities of the organized right. Hmm. So that set the stage for this election, and it wasn't setting the stage for Donald Trump. They didn't expect Donald Trump to be the one to come in and take advantage of that, but, but he did. So not, you say the answer must be some uh, organization, um, what kind of? There's what, going to have to be that? some kind of, I think it has to be through the Democratic Party itself, which means that the Democratic Party is going to have to reform itself and turn itself into more than just a conduit for checks. Hmm. 
and just uh, um, something that runs ads during elections. It's going to have to have more of an organized presence in a lot of local areas and states and, um, and probably direct groups of volunteers as well as a, a party officials are going to have to have a, build a presence. I don't see anything outside the party that's likely to do that because much of the less, rest of the organized left in the United States takes the form of issue advocacy groups. Hmm which are very important, but they don't have a presence necessarily much beyond Washington and New York and maybe California. But, but you as an expert of the structure and history of the political body of this country, would you say so that it's still uh, working? There's been a lot of discussion about the Electoral College, you say, so the federal way the, 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 this country is organized, which, going back historically, was always favoring... Uh, the reactionary South, I guess, or the South to be more objective, or, or not, so for that matter. But also the two-party system, which you say is, of this, is well, in a way very you know, much distorting the, 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 the diversity of the, of the There are voters. a lot of procedural reformers in the United States who want to pick some procedural thing, the Electoral College, uh, I don't know, um, the way presidents are, any of these things, money in politics, and 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 hope that the, we, those can be changed. Well, I don't know how they're going to be changed. I'm going to tell you right now, they're not going to be changed because the people who would have to benefit from them have to vote to get rid of them. Um, the electoral college has been um, at the center of, of the organization of the United States since it was born as a nation. And it's not really just the Electoral College. It's that you're giving a lot of clout to states, big and small. And that was originally partly a compromise between the free north and the slave south, but it was also a compromise between big states and little states. So you're going to get Delaware and Rhode Island and you know all these places to get rid of that? I don't think so, because it gives them more say in, say, the Congress and... Uh, But that's such an interesting question. So, you say change, and in a way, from what I you got to play within the rules of the game as they exist. Yeah, but how can you change existing systems? That's the same question in Europe. So, how do you how do you adapt? Win elections. You win elections. Yeah, that's how you do it. You go out and you talk to voters in various places, and you get people registered to vote, and you get them to the polls, and you win elections. But I know it's the system is really so, yeah. simple. <laughs> but, but there are a lot of people on the American left who think, you know, street demonstrations, lawsuits. But don't you have None an idea? You but win elections. Yeah, sure. But after you, don't you have to have an idea of, you know, how do you want to use? If you, I, I agree with, I, I agree with you um, on that. Um, but <laughs> I don't. The purpose of politics is not. I mean, no, the, I the winning an election is the is the means, not the purpose. I mean, the, it's. You win. Pretty important right now. No, no. I mean, if the Democrats yes. don't start winning some guess, elections yes, pretty yes, soon, yes. this thing is going to lock but in. But just to uh, support George in his, <laughs> in his question, after you win elections, how would you want to change these institutions? So they are, you well, know, stronger all right, I mean, and so that corporate interests cannot hijack them. Well, in retrospect, I mean, uh, during the moment when uh, Barack Obama and the Democrats controlled three branches in Washington, they should have done more. On, on the kinds of things that the right always does in the U.S. The right always goes after the organizational capacities of their opponents yeah. and seeks to build up their own organizational capacities. Mm. So, you know, they should have done... They probably should have gotten rid of the filibuster, and which they could have done, yeah. and pushed through some things mm. that uh, now... Can you explain to our um, audience why that is important? Because if you've got to get 60 votes in the Senate, it's very hard to get anything that changes the status quo through. Um, and that was the drama in the first two years of Obama's presidency was whether you could get anything through. They had 59 votes or 58, depending on how you wanted to count Joe Lieberman of Connecticut. And uh, the, the Republicans tied up Al Franken and in challenges for six months, not because they thought they were going to win in the end, but because they could keep him from voting. Mm. And then the state of Massachusetts proceeded to elect Scott Brown and take him down to 59 again. And, you know, the whole the whole potential for putting through changes that those sweeping majorities in 2008 wanted was hobbled by that. 
Now, I know why they didn't do it. They would have had trouble getting the support of some of the Democrats. The Democrats are a more diverse political coalition, not just ethnically, but also in terms of, of centrists, well, not exactly centrists, but moderate liberals and, and, and very liberal people from different parts of the country who see politics differently. Um, they, don't, they aren't as unified as Republicans are. Could I... Uh, or haven't been. They may be going forward because threat is a powerful mobilizer and threat I'm, is what's happening now. I'm sorry to insist, but so if, uh, <laughs> anyway, you, you said something uh, at the beginning which was more in a way, complex to, to change than what you say about ele winning elections. I, I'd like to sort of just get your grasp of what democracy is about in your mind because you said there has to be change. On the outside, there has to be change sort of in how, we, how people interact, how people organize, how people talk about what they want, and all that. And that seems to drive change more than yeah. election, or that that might lead. Well, it's not to either or; election. it's yeah, both. But, but maybe you can sort of sketch out your because I think in a way, people, how people talk about politics, especially in the media, especially in TV media, it's it's so super reductionist that it's, um, it's furthering sort of misunderstanding of what politics is. So I, I think there has to be reconstruction of the way that people conceive of themselves as political uh, animals, uh, uh, to use a antique term, um, uh, but, but so to, to, to conceive them of themselves as citizens. And, and, and I'm well, interested and to in some degree there that. is. That's going on. I mean, I, I think especially younger Americans are not um, doing things the old way. And we're seeing a fair amount of... of um, I would say lateral organization and people organizing in their local areas and wanting to connect to others. And, and uh, now the big question in the American center left is always, will that be done in a way that treats the Democratic Party as something you should attack and dismantle? Or are you going to leverage it and, and reform it and use it? Uh, certainly the right did just that. The Tea Partiers never tried to dismantle. They took advantage of hmm and tried to change and use the Republican Party. Uh, Occupy Wall Street did not, and Occupy Wall Street, you know, flitted and, and, and disappeared. The big question now is whether these huge marches that we've seen, um, I don't really mean the ones against about immigration, I mean the Women's March, which was huge and was all over the country. It wasn't just in the big, in the capital, or just in the, the big cities, it was substantial numbers of people in small cities and in states across the country, will those people then begin to organize and organize outside the cities in their states? You don't really need a majority. You need a concerted small group of people who are prepared to speak up, mm. who are prepared to uh, offer interpretations. Mm. The, the Trump environment is going to be very rich for this because the man has promised things he is not going to deliver on or he's going to deliver on disasters. I'm willing to make that kind of prediction. My sister lives in West Virginia. The people there are all convinced that Donald Trump is bringing back high-paying coal jobs. Well, not only is he not going to bring back high-paying coal jobs, which have been killed by deunionization, technological change, and natural gas, he's going to make life tougher there because anything he does to create a trade war is going to raise the prices at Walmart, where these very poor people go for their white people, not black people. And furthermore, there are no immigrants there to speak of, and, and, and these people are also going to be facing new privations once they cut back on the health insurance programs. So what Democrats and citizens groups who are opposed to Trump, who are not all Democrats, need to do is identify some of these issues that are very core to communities of various types. Health care cutbacks are a big one. And talk about those. Make visible what's happening or could happen. And get people registered to vote and to turn out. If in 2017 and 18 the Republicans lose some governorships, if they lose ground in the Congress, that will be a shot across the bow for the rest of the Republicans, and they will begin to think, maybe we should do more than look over our shoulder to the right or worry about the latest tweet from Donald Trump. If that doesn't happen, though, Trump could easily cement himself in, especially if the economy 
yeah, as well. I, that's the big story. I think that's so interesting, um, also comparing this moment in time with uh, other moments in time when you've had strong leaders emerge. Uh, I mean, the, the big difference here, you do have this exploding inequality, but at the same time, you have this a strong economy. You have, you know, um, yeah, growth coming back, Obama jobs coming could. back. So it's a great moment for for Trump in that sense. It's a big advantage for him. Well, it depends on what he's doing. I mean, sure. I, I do... The <clears throat> thing is, um, American presidents have less control over the economy than everybody imagines. So partly yes, this is course. a question of developments we can't predict. But I, I'm having a hard time understanding why even the things he's talking about... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Doing, if he can get them done, are going to help the economy and social fabric of the places that elected him. I'm... I'm just, and I'm with some professors here, we've launched a new research project. We're going to track what happens in two, two Trump counties apiece in Pennsylvania, Ohio, mm-hmm. Wisconsin, and North Carolina. So it's an open question. But if there are cutbacks in health insurance, that hits these places hard, just as hard, even harder than it does lower-income urban populations because the health care older white places have a lot of people who depend on federal subsidies of various kinds for their health insurance their hospitals may close if those subsidies are cut back. I don't know that Trump gets that. Uh, I don't know that he understands that his Republican allies in Congress want to make changes that are going to go right at his supporters. Mm. The coal jobs and the factory jobs are not coming back. Uh, even an infrastructure bill, which he may get through Congress, or building the wall along the southern border. How is that going to build the economy in these depressed areas of Pennsylvania and Ohio and Michigan and Wisconsin? It's not, because the infrastructure bill that's being talked about is a bunch of tax cuts. The one thing you can be sure is going to pass, and soon, is big tax cuts for the wealthiest Americans. They don't live in those places. They don't invest in those places. But then the question is, I guess, whether people actually expect things to change that much you know what are the real expectations of the voters in terms of bringing jobs back i mean it could be question it could be the fact i mean it could could be that people um think that he's on their side uh but they also know that it's not that easy to bring back jobs Mm -hmm. so um, and people aren't i don't know people are more rational i think in terms of how much they think politics can actually affect um Unemployment and jobs in the short term. So I I'm don't just, know. I'm just I think that there. Are, I think there are very high expectations among so? some of okay. his core supporters. Now, you know, those expectations also center on him taking strong actions to exclude immigrants, which are largely symbolic for yeah. these folks because the immigrants aren't where they are in most cases. Although there are more places than you might think. I, I just don't know. That's why we're doing this research. We're interested in what people perceive, not just citizens, but also local leaders mm. of key institutions and what they, how they interpret it. Um, I do think it's a mistake to overestimate the voter support for Donald Trump. I mean, he squeaked in, and he squeaked in with a minority of voters. Uh, you could argue that all kinds of things, the Comey letter, the crazy lefties who voted for somebody else, I mean, uh, of which there were plenty. Uh, and and th- th- these things made the difference. And uh, a lot of the voters who voted for Trump told surveyors that they thought he wasn't really temperamentally qualified for the presidency. He's lost popularity since he was, mm. which is a real trick. I mean, presidents don't usually lose popularity between the election and the inauguration or in the week after the inauguration. So that signals that there are quite a few soft supporters who were voting against Hillary Clinton or who weren't voting and who have their doubts. Well, those doubts may very well be stoked. And for different groups of voters, it's going to be different things. 
Can I go back to something you said earlier? And you talked about um, we talked about institutions and uh, that you still trust that they will hold. And you said that the media now plays an important role. And you mentioned how they had been. You said the media had been manip- manipulated during the uh, during the election campaign. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you think about that? Because we're journalists. He's a all. very very savvy politician, Donald Trump. <clears throat> he understood from early on that if he just said one outrageous thing after another, he'd have the cameras on him all the time. And you know, a lot of people criticize Hillary Clinton for not having the right message. Well. No message that she tried to convey ever got across, except during the debates when her popularity went up. Uh, she just, he just manipulated, uh, particularly the television outlets, to just follow his every move. So, what should journalists have done? What did they do? Well, the New York Times should be ashamed of itself. I mean, in my view, I mean, it, it, it one puff piece on on um, anxieties in the Democratic Party or worries about Clinton emails after another while a con man, basically, um, did got very little sustained coverage for his most outrageous moves. And, um, uh, you know, there were a convergent series of things. I, I think that Washington Post conducted itself pretty well. I don't believe that. But they were, of course, excluded by Trump early on. I mean, one of the interesting dynamics in the American press is that there's a tendency to to hang on the every word that a president or a presidential candidate says, and that gives those candidates enormous power to, if they're prepared to be provocative. I think there's been reflection in media circles. I mean, you would know better than I, but I think since the election... A lot of reflection, I would say. Yeah. Reflection, but no clues, really. uh. Well, no, the Times, the New York Times, you can see that they've changed. I mean, they, they seem to have more muscle in what they're doing, and I'm not saying that they're only publishing criticisms of Trump, but they are not, um, being led by the nose as much, and they're clearly investigating uh, things and publishing those reports one after another, you're seeing some firmness, I would say. Um, I'm interested in that that point of that you sort of say that the media was played, which sort of uh, counters a 20th century argument that you say the media is creating the environment for sort of people to understand the the, the context. And so this this might signal actually a rupture in the way things are are done. Or it might just signal that there's a very talented demagogue uh, among us. But I'm interested in all these, how you see all these narratives that seem, from an outside perspective, looking in, into America, seem so um, facile in a way. So you have this, or, or also in European context, you have this narrative, it's against the elites, it's against the elites, it's an uh, uprising against the establishment. I, I think that's, so for this country, wrong, for this election, is wrong, it's simplistic. And there's a sort of it's it's it combines it's combined with this very broad narrative of populism, which I think is also not very specific, not very uh, a good narrative, and combined that with the post-election coming to terms with what with, with what happened is about the economy. Oh, we forgot the white middle class, mm-hmm. which is also not true. And you say you say that it's not about the economy. So so for one, I think this country is under. Estimating racism in, in 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 the election, so if that goes to immigration, I, that would be a question. But but the broader question is, how do you see these narratives? How are they constructed, or specifically populism and and the white middle class? Are those sort of narratives that, that well, the idea again? that this was about the white working class is not just a media narrative; it's being pushed by the left as well. But but would you agree that it's, uh, because a lot of people that I think talk it's, uh, are offended by that because it's, I think it's, it's it was large. never about the black middle class in the last thirty years well, either. Uh, most of the working class in the United States is no longer white, uh, so that right okay. there. But come on, Bernie Sanders pushed this; he's still pushing it. <laughs> you so he know, shouldn't have. No, he shouldn't have. He he bears some responsibility in all of this. Um, I. I did spend some time looking closely at exactly what happened in the election, not because I think that's the main thing to be doing now, but I I had promised to give a lecture a week after the election called Understanding Election 2016, so <laughs> I had to, and I had been working on it all along. Uh, to me, the thing that really changed from earlier uh, Republican versus Democratic presidential elections 
was that Trump uh, piled up high margins in non-big city counties. Now, what that means is that it wasn't really a class thing. It was a community thing. Um, instead of losing, uh, say, non-big city counties in Pennsylvania 60-40, the way Obama usually did, because it's not new for white middle-income people to go Republican. That's been happening um, for quite some time. Um, instead of losing by that margin, uh, Hillary Clinton lost some of those counties, 70-30, uh, 80-20. Um, what that means is that entire communities um, come, came to see themselves either in Donald Trump's message or in opposition to whatever they thought Hillary Clinton was standing for, and probably Barack Obama before that. Now, have those communities as communities suffered economically? Yes, they have. And they are also the site of um, increasing social disintegration. The drug problem is very bad in those areas. You just need to drive, which I do all the time. I drive beyond the liberal enclaves in which I live now. And you can see it. And that he tapped into that resentment, and it is partially racial. There's no question about it. But it's not only racial, and even the parts of it that are racial, I think, need to be understood. Um, it's not so much that most people living in those areas, are, you can find some, you know, almost neo-Nazi-like young men, but most people are not like that, and they are not necessarily rejecting of individual people the immigrants that live in their <clears throat> midst, the Latinos they know, the black, the occasional black person that they might know. It's that they perceive government, and I think this perception grew under Obama, as distributing largesse on city people, heavily minority, and neglecting them. Now, of course, that's unfair. Obama actually did preside over some laws that have made things better for people in those communities, which they're suddenly realizing as Obamacare might be repealed. I mean, they didn't, a lot of Americans didn't know what was in Obamacare. Well, they're suddenly realizing uh, that more, as political scientists would predict this, when something is about to be taken away, people notice it more than they did before, and you've seen a real shift in even Republican opinion uh, on that. Maybe too late. A lot of those people were not really voting for the specific policy changes they're getting. Uh, they don't. Americans often don't vote for policy changes. They vote for people, and they vote for an attitude. And I do think that the non-metropolitan communities are often angry as hell. They feel they've been left behind. And that's not entirely wrong. I mean, they have been uh, in some ways. It's not so much a matter of closing factories or trade or any one thing. It's just a general... So why don't you think that Bernie Sanders should have pushed that narrative that George is speaking about? He went, he went on way too long about how Hillary Clinton was corrupt. The whole thing just looks ridiculous right. okay. in reverse. I mean, it just looks ridiculous. Um, a problem with some emails and a couple of speeches on mm -hmm. Wall Street compared mm -hmm. to what's happening now? I mean, so you mean that specifically the attacks on Clinton rather than well, the, the, or the, the Or the claim that the Democratic Party was corrupt. And, you know, he said he was speaking for the working class, but it, he didn't mostly get working class votes. Right. First of all, most working class people are not white, mm. which you wouldn't know from listening to the, to the debate. The debate. Mm. But but even in, even in states mm. where, he, in a few states where he had overwhelming margins, he had white, white, less educated white people voted for him. But in some of those states, they were voting for him as a proxy for voting for Trump. I mean, let's go into West Virginia, which I happen to know very well because my sister lives there. And they interviewed a lot of the people who voted for Trump versus Clinton in the primary, and they said they weren't voting for anybody who'd worked for that nigger, Hillary Clinton, race. And they were planning to vote for Trump in the general, which they did. And we know that if you go into neighboring Kentucky, where, where people in similar kinds of um, downscale communities where coal mining has gone long since and they're living in poverty, they can vote for none of the above. Well, they did vote for none of the above. And so Hillary Clinton carried Kentucky, mm. barely. Mm. 
in the primary. So this tells you that, uh, I'll tell you who voted for Bernie Sanders, young college people. His contributors and his voters were overwhelming in college communities and in liberal, the most liberal parts. Um, Which is the generation sort of that was, I guess, most affected by the central historical event that led to this election result in this country, but also, I think, sort of upended a lot of balances in, in Europe. And I, I would sort of like to sort of talk about that and, and, and shift shift the view to and democracy. And they all took so for granted that was, Hillary Clinton was going to win. Yeah, but they she was... They all took for granted, and a lot of them didn't vote. So there was a financial crisis. There no, was the, there was I, the, there I, was well, the, I don't agree that college students but, are the most affected by the... Okay, but let me, let, me, let me try to make <laughs> the point. But le, Okay, maybe they weren't the, the most affected, but so if I, I, as far as I can tell, this was a re rebellion, a re revolt against... What happened during the financial crisis? That's Steve Bannon's view of, of, of capitalism, of the world. This is this is crony capitalism. This is not enlightened capitalism, as he so sort of says that. And, and and the irony for somebody like me is that sort of people of, of the left have always made the point that that the way the financial crisis was handled was all wrong, especially sort of in Europe, driving whole countries into uh, bankruptcy or, or semi-suicide. Uh, 50 percent youth unemployment in Spain and all that, and, and so, sort of, which is strangely holding Spain, and and that created the, for example, in Germany, this this combined with the Im immigrant influx, this this very toxic situation. Um, how how on a, and you say well, it's the, the tax United cuts, States is the not tax cuts is, will the United come States anyway. is not Germany, and, I know, and, and but handled it, the financial crisis much better than Germany did, much better than Europe did. I agree with that. Yeah, okay, okay, but but still, it, it was a revolt against against what happened for a lot of people who who see that they were sort of. I don't agree with that. You don't I, agree with that? No, I don't. I mean, I don't. I don't think so. I don't think that that's now. But this is for, the Bannon first argument. First of all, that's, that's, that's the Bannon argument, but it's not my argument. So it's fine for that to be the Bannon argument. Um, it converges with some people on the left, but I don't agree with that analysis. I don't think that's what fueled the Bernie challenge to Hillary Clinton. First of all, there's nothing unusual about a left challenge to a mainstream Democrat in American primaries. They happen all the time. There's only one that's ever won the nomination, and that's Barack Obama, and he won it because he had black people supporting him. Bernie Sanders had basically no support from Latinos and blacks in, this, in the primary. He wouldn't have had it in the general election either, uh, to the degree that he needed it. Uh, and... You know, you have to ask yourself, if you're an American at least, on the left, you have to ask yourself, what does that mean? That's the majority of the working class in this country. We can go, we can wax on and on as if it was the 1930s, but it's really not. So that's why people thought that the Republican Party is actually a step ahead, that they had two Latino candidates who might have tapped into that uh, electorate. Well, I don't think they would have. They're Cubans. But that's, you would say that's, you have to In the United States, we know our the, ethnicities. Uh, <laughs> and but, Cubans you, are, not, are not typical of Latinos. In the, you know, but that's interesting. So going forward, so if you would say that there has to be a reconfiguration of alliances that sort of form. A, Democrats a, a just need movement. to have a little bit more presence beyond their base. They don't need to give up their base. They shouldn't do that. They, they should continue to work to get young people, minorities involved and they should certainly speak for the various things that they're speaking for but they need more of a presence outside of non-metropolitan communities that means they need to organize in those places and they haven't been doing it. But don't you think um, Barack Obama did more of it by the way I guess going also back to um, the question of what is this a reaction if, you, if we see this as a reaction what do we see, see it as a reaction against and I agree with um, the fact that the U.S. handled the financial crisis so much better than than Europe, I think that's uh, undisputed almost. But at the same time, at another level, we have this exploding inequality, and that has, I mean, that's the deeper trend. That's we the do. bigger trend. Yeah. And uh, coming as some as people as us, you know, coming from from the progressive side of politics or from the left, that, I mean, the bigger, much bigger question is, what do you do? What do you do about that? Because it's one thing to handle a, a, a financial crisis and and you know stimulus packages and some tax cuts and um, um, you know uh, some 
and they did that well. But what do you do about these bigger bigger things? And isn't Trump, in a way, channeling the discontent uh, of change that comes with inequality, that comes with globalization? Uh, you said that you don't believe the economic ex- um, models uh, for explaining this. Not primarily. But what is the connection then between, is it only, you said immigration. Immigration. So why are people so worried about immigration? Doesn't that has, have to do with these other changes as well? Uh, a little bit. I mean, the ang- all I can say is that when we interviewed Tea Party people at the grassroots in 2011, by the way, that's when... Um, Donald Trump first announced his nate his birther critique. Right, caught a lot of attention. If he'd yeah. run then, I think he would have been the non Romney that many of them wanted, and they did they did want a non Romney. We were talking to conservative activists at the grassroots, and you know everywhere we talked to them, immigration was what made them angry, and it wasn't an economic thing in the sense of jobs. It was about people would say, oh, they're crowding into the hospital. Um, uh, emergency rooms. They're uh, forcing me to select English or Spanish on the phone. They're, um, their kids are in the schools. Um, and uh, you, if you go out into non-metropolitan America and you look, what you'll see is that in a lot of places, um, no doubt because of these crazy uh, policies that have been followed by both parties for quite some time. Uh, industries and unions have collapsed. You, you have low-paying jobs only or back-breaking jobs, and immigrant communities have come into these places all over the country. Yeah, but then there's the question of jobs. sufficient numbers right. to make them wonderful political fodder, but not insufficient numbers to change the votes mm. in a lot of these states. So uh, jobs are part of it, but they are not the proximate cause. The proximate cause is a reaction against Obama as a black president. And, you know, the most egalitarian policy that passed the United States federal government in the last 50 years is the uh, Affordable Care Act. I'm interested. It taxes the rich and Mm. it pays for insurance for Mm. white and black and brown people Mm. who don't have health insurance. Mm. So I think looking at it from a global perspective, it's interesting to to, to hear what you say because you would uh, could argue sort of in an apocalyptic left perspective, oh, it's all going down the drain. It's all part of the same uh, movement towards a liberal democracy or towards uh, reactionary governments, and this is all connected. And you say this is not specifically connected. Well, uh, I do think you have time. to. Well, I do. You do have to look at, at Europe and, and and various countries where these right populist movements are happening, and the United States. You have to look country by country to get a, a, a sense of what tensions are being exploited. Um, now, will there be connections? Yeah, I think there probably is. I mean, I think Trump's ascendancy in the United States, even though remember it's a minority ascendancy, it's a squeaking through in an oddly structured political system, that is emboldening um, really racial nationalists in Europe and elsewhere. And that could dismantle uh, much of the Western, post-World War II Western order. It certainly could. We haven't talked about the foreign policy side of this, and I think that's much more threatening. Mm. I think if you're looking at domestic policy, the particular forces feeding it are not the same in all these countries. Uh, and certainly the interaction of anti-immigrant sentiment with and anti-refugee sentiment with uh, feelings about the welfare state are quite different. Partly because the welfare states are very different in these countries. Yeah, that's why why this um, explanation is surprising to me because I think it's more um, intuitively uh, feels more intuitively correct in, in in Europe to talk where we do have an immigration shock uh, in the last years. But in the U.S., what you've had is actually immigration going down. And at the same time, this, um, as you say, uh, explosion of anti-immigrant sentiment that is partly um, Well, remember, the United States has... Ra- so is it more, I'm just thinking, is it more about Obama 
and racism connected to Obama more than, you know, actual immigration? Well, I think it's both coming yeah. together. And, you know, the United States, you're right. I mean, in Europe, you can point to an actual refugee crisis. It yes. really is real and, um, and quite alarming. And the terrorist incidents have been horrendous. And we've had some in this United States as well. Terrorism is another part of this that we're not talking about. Mm-hmm. And the, the U.S. incidents have not really been um, due to immigration. They've been due to what always happens in the United States, which is some young man going off the rails um, all by himself, or maybe with a brother or something, and uh, using good old American ingenuity to get the weapons and the, or make them and go out and ravage some people. That happens pretty regularly in the United States, quite apart from... Um, Islam or anything else, um, but it, it does provide fodder, and it has provided fodder. Fear of that, um, but I think you're right. I think that when we talk about the tensions that Obama has been able to play, they are both long-standing black-white racial tensions, and the racial tensions that an era of high immigration, even if it's tailed off recently, have given rise to. Immigrants have spread all over the United States, but not in sufficient numbers in a lot of places to change the politics in a liberal direction. Instead, you know, they do in California, but in a lot of places they can be scapegoated. Well, this guy is scapegoating them. I mean, he's, he launched his presidential campaign by saying it's rapists coming across the Mexican border. That's not true, but that's what he said. And that definitely does pick up on some of the racial uh, anxieties that a lot of native-born, middle-income whites in particular, feel. Um, At the end of a presidency, two terms of the presidency of a black president. So the black president is a really big part of this. And the fact that Hillary Clinton tried to build on that coalition by, say, embracing the Black Lives Matter movement, she needed to do that. It was the right thing to do morally and policy-wise, and it was also important to mobilizing the Barack Obama constituency. But uh, the degree to which that angered white police forces across the country cannot be underestimated as a factor in this. Their anger and their fear, and it is fear as well, contributed to the mobilization. All the security forces, all the security unions were behind Trump. And they have a presence in a lot of communities in the United States. It's probably a bigger factor than it would be in Europe. Mm-hmm. I agree. Should we sort of talk about foreign policy for the last bit of or sure. for a few minutes? Um, so is, is it, 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 in Europe, sort of, it was said that this is the end of the American century, per se, Basically, so if isolationism setting in, and, and so if, is is if if is is America is the U.S. able to sort of single-handedly tear apart the whole system of uh, worldwide corporations, uh, corpor- do, corporations, do a lot of United Nations? So if, is is that what we see? Is that so? Sort of what we'll see in the next forty, fifty, or thirty years? A disintegration of of all the ways that that, that foreign policy and cooperation has been handled. Well, let's just deal with the next four years. I mean, it's already evident that um, Donald Trump is going to alienate everybody. This is a one-man wrecking crew. I mean, everybody who deals with him, and that's in his business empire, in politics. Think about his supporters even in the Republican Party. They're all burned in the end. He's going to burn our allies, uh, which will weaken the Western alliances. He just yelled at the... Because yeah. here at the Australian, or he, yeah. he hung up on the Australian yeah. prime minister. He threatened to invade Mexico. I mean, he's humiliating the Mexican president, which means, and the, the the problem. I mean, I actually thought the Wall Street Journal laid it out pretty well. I mean, they're not a liberal organ. They said Trump is going to have to learn, and I doubt that he will. That dealing with foreign heads of state is not the same thing as the business partners and politicians he humiliates here, or even the corporations that he humiliates here. Because there are publics in these countries, and when the publics hear that their leader has been humiliated by a loathsome, in their view, American president, they're going to pressure those heads of state to stand up, or they'll vote him out of office. And 
that's going to weaken the ability of Western countries to cooperate. I mean, I think Europe would be smart. Most European countries would be smart to just realize that they need to treat Donald Trump with kid gloves and start working with each other. I mean, uh, that's the thing that interests me, whether his intimidation tactics will cause disintegration of ties or whether they will encourage other countries as well as uh, other people in the United States who don't support him to form ties with each other and just firmly, quietly, and persistently stand up. I think that may happen in the United States, which is why I have quite a bit of faith in American civil society. I don't think it's that easy to tell pres uh, Americans to kowtow. Um, it just isn't. It's one of our strengths that we don't do that. And whether we can organize to not kowtow is another question. But will other countries, including supposed American allies, respond to all of this by strengthening their ties with each other and working, working bypasses around the United States? To me, that's the optimistic path. Now, that's not good for America. I mean, I'm an American patriot, and I think this country will be so much weaker after even four years of this. What's the pessimistic path? <sighs> Wars and spreading nativism and fear. I was going to end on the on optimistic that, path. <laughs> <laughs> on that note. No, I hope not. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... You know, if a war with Iran is not going to do anybody any good, but there That's are people sure. around Donald Trump who want just exactly that. That's so. how it seems. Yeah. Just reading the news. Just yeah. very, yeah, very, very, very quick. Okay. All right. Okay. Thank, Thank you, you so much for this conversation.